Good morning. My name is Dustin. If we've never met before, I'm on staff here at South Point. If you were with us last week, Jamie introduced us to an Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah. And Jamie preached about this encounter that Elijah had with this poor widow and her son and how God provided for them in their scarcity and showed up for them in their desperation. And he answered the question, where is God when I'm desperate? Jamie also mentioned last week that in the story that a drought has come over the land of Israel as a result of the people's sin because they continue to turn their back on God time and time again. A three-year drought that is so severe that there literally isn't even dew on the dead grass in the morning when the sun comes up. Like things are bad. In addition to this, a corrupt king named Ahab and his manipulative wife named Jezebel are ruling and Jezebel has introduced the worship of this false god named Baal among the people of Israel and has even begun hunting down and murdering the prophets of the one true God. Things are bleak. Evil has swept over the land. The people have abandoned God and latched onto the idea of worshiping the false god Baal. And this morning we're going to be looking at the question, where is God when the world is against me? And this morning we're going to read about Elijah's encounter with this king Ahab and the prophets of this false god, Baal. And so God instructs Elijah to set up a meeting with this king Ahab. And the king agrees to meet him if for no other reason than that he is desperate to find any possible solution for this three-year drought that is happening and wrecked the land. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story this morning, this meeting between Elijah and this king. And we are in the book of 1 Kings, starting at chapter 18, verse 17. And this is what the scripture says. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah Waste literally no time. Forget the formalities. Forget the how are you doings. Immediately, Elijah calls out the king. Things are messed up in Israel. This drought is here, and it's because of what you and your family have done. You've instituted this false idol worship. Enough is enough. I want everyone in Israel, including all the prophets of this false god you worship, I want them all in the same place at the same time, and we're going to sort this mess out. The passage goes on. It says, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. And so they're going to settle this issue. No more games. No more mincing words. 
Elijah says, let's see whose God actually shows up. And so Elijah says they're going to set up two separate altars and they're going to prepare two sacrifices for their God. And whichever God accepts the sacrifice, that's how they're going to know who is the one true God. And Elijah says, if my God doesn't show up, then you can worship this Baal. And that's pretty legendary stuff. That's like next level faith and confidence. Let's see whose God actually shows up. And this one verse to me at least encapsulates one of the most powerful truths of the Christian faith and one that I think a lot of non-believers don't really understand and it's that you are not expected to worship a God who doesn't show up. You're not expected to worship a God who doesn't show up. You know what so many people in this world believe about the Christian faith? Well, they tend to lump it in with all these other religions where it's like we have a text, we have the Bible, and that text just represents a list of rules and standards that we must live by. And somewhere in the midst of all these rules and standards, there exists this magical imaginary line called being a good person. And if you're a good person, then one day you'll go to heaven. But the thing is, no one can really agree on what it means to be a good person other than the fact that most people consider themselves to be a member of this good person club. While simultaneously, they consider people who sin differently than they do as not members of this good person club. And then as we do our best to try to live up to these rules and standards and stay a member of the good person club, this tyrannical God just like watches us like a hawk from his throne just shaking his head all disappointed in us, waiting for the day that we die and he can take all of our mistakes and throw them in our face. And then at that point, he'll finally reveal to us where the line between a good person and a bad person lies and hopefully we land on the good side so we get to go to heaven and not with the bad people and get thrown into a lake of fire. Oh, and by the way, in the midst of this good person test we call life, terrible things are going to happen to us all the time. And this tyrannical God is not going to get involved in any way, but rather he's just going to passively watch us and inspect us to make sure that we don't have moments of weakness during this time. And if we do have moments of weakness, and if we don't smile and pretend like everything's okay, even though we're falling apart inside, this God is going to hold it against us, and it's going to be a mark on our application for the good person club. And so many people in the world look at this and say, I will never worship a God like that. Well, let me just say this, neither would I. Neither would I, and that's not what this is. That's not the God that I worship. The God I worship didn't throw me a list of rules to see if I could be good enough. No, the God I worship knew I couldn't be good enough, and so instead he threw himself on a cross to die and create a path to life for me. The God I worship doesn't stand idly by while I stand before 450 prophets and an evil king and his wife who want to kill me. My God shows up time and time again and we aren't expected to worship God if he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Because God is a God of his word and he keeps all of his promises. So Elijah lays it out. If God is God, then you've got to worship him. But if he's not, then go worship whatever you want. Worship Baal, worship yourself if you want. But if God does what he says he does, if he is who he says he is, man, we have to fall at his feet and worship him. That's why Paul says in Corinthians in the New Testament, 
He lays it out again. He says if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, if Jesus didn't resurrect back to life after dying on a cross, if he didn't do that, then all of your faith is in vain and it's a waste of time. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, if he is who he says he is, then life can't go on the same. You see, I say this all the time. For me, what started as a leap of faith when I was young, this this decision of making the choice to forfeit control of my life and try to die to myself and receive this gift of salvation from Jesus and then spend my life trying to live for him, and that's a leap of faith. That leap of faith has resulted in a lifetime of me experiencing God's faithfulness. And people seem to not understand that. I don't live on blind faith. I just don't hope that there's a God out there somewhere. He's shown up for me. He shows up for me. How do I know? I've been changed. I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. I used to have no hope, but now I have a hope that never lets me go. I used to be very strongly controlled by the need for things to look a certain way and be a certain way, but now through Jesus, I found myself able to be content no matter what life throws at me. There are a lot of promises God makes in the Bible about how he will show up and provide and strengthen and comfort and love and fight for his children. I encourage you to go read them. And when I tell you not once, not once in my life has God ever not done what he has said he will do, he shows up every single time. It is amazing. But here's the thing. You have to understand what God promises and you have to understand what Jesus offers and you can't mix our mess into it because a lot of people will say, well, I prayed for this thing and it didn't happen. I needed God to move in this way and he didn't move. I had faith that this thing would come true and it didn't and so I'm walking away. I'm allowed to walk away. That proves that God is not God. And I'd say, man, if that's where your mind is at right now and I say this kindly to you, you just might not understand how this Christianity thing actually works. Because what we need to understand and what I think a lot of people don't understand is that God owes us nothing. He died on a cross. He made a way for us to experience life. We think that we're, or we think that he's indebted to us because we chose to follow him. He's indebted to us because he saved us. God is not indebted to us for following him. God doesn't move according to our will. He has a perfect will. And God has not made any guarantees to check yes on all of your prayer requests, even if you really strongly have faith that he can do so. You see, this whole Jesus thing is not about you getting everything that you want. This whole Jesus thing is about you being with him and about him being with you. Like, that's the prize. That's the blessing. And if being with Jesus and knowing him and him knowing you and loving you fully and dying for you, if that doesn't feel like a prize to you, then I venture to say maybe you haven't actually experienced it because it levels people. Jesus is the one that brings all of the joy and the hope and the peace. Man, it's not about you trying to live your best life. It is literally about you losing your fake life in exchange for something that's real. It's not about you not, it's not, about you not having to be strong enough or good enough anymore. It's because you've put your hope in the one who is strong enough and good enough. And it's definitely not about you never experiencing struggles or adversity in this life, but rather it is about you never being alone when those struggles come. No matter what the struggle is, because the God 
who created everything and created you and knows you and loves you, is walking with you in every dark valley, and even when you can't go on, he'll carry you. And he shows up every time, and when you understand that it's about all of these things, and it's not just about you getting what you want, it's not just about you getting your way. When you understand that, you will see that God hasn't let you down. God hasn't abandoned you. He showed up. He always shows up. He does what he says he will do. And so Elijah lays down the challenge. Man, let's see whose God actually shows up. And if my God doesn't show up, worship whatever you want. Passage goes on. It says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, that is, what it sounds like. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. That's just to let you know this is a big trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And we're not talking about like a glass of water. We're talking about a big heaping jar. Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So we're up to 12 giant jars of water. And it says the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is a God. The Lord, He is a God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, slaughtered them there. <laughs> I mean, what a scene, man. What a moment. You have these prophets of Baal going on for hours and hours, raving, crying out, cutting themselves, making this entire big show. Nothing happens. And then you have Elijah, and he dumps these 12 giant jars of water all over everything, the wood, 
the bull so much so that it's run down off the altar and filled up this trench around it. And it's almost like he's doing this to say, I'm going to make sure that you can't say that what's about to happen was some accident or some coincidence. I'm going to make sure that you know that the God I serve is over everything. He's over the flesh and the animals and us and water and wood and the stones and even the dirt. And when my God commands something, everything obeys him, just like we sang about this morning. And then Elijah offers a prayer, which we're going to go back to. But as soon as Elijah offers this prayer to God, all at once, this plume of fire from heaven just like strikes down upon the altar and immediately everything is burnt up. Not even an ash is left. The bull, the wood, the water, even the stones and dust are eviscerated immediately. And the people see this and they just fall on their faces and praise the one true God. And the prophets of Baal are slain by the hand of Elijah. Did you see the lesson that these prophets learned the hard way? We either walk with Jesus or we limp towards death. We either walk with Jesus or we limp towards death. And, and let me just clarify this just in case it isn't obvious. Baal is not a real God. There, there are no other gods except the one true God. Baal wasn't asleep or relieving himself or just not around or afraid. Baal doesn't exist. And yet, although Baal never did and still doesn't exist, we still see signs of people worshiping him even to this day. Now, they don't understand because they're participating in these ancient practices. They wouldn't identify themselves as prophets of Baal. You see, Baal is a very adaptable and flexible God. And people in different regions would worship him for these different purposes. Some worshipped him as the god of the rain and the sun who could control the weather. Some worshipped him as the god of agriculture and produce. Many worshipped him as the god of fertility. But in the end, the people were just worshipping him in order to get whatever they wanted. They worshipped him for their own purposes. We want rain. We want food. We want children. We want success. We want comfort. And do you know the two primary ways they worshipped Baal back in the days of Elijah, thousands of years ago, how they would worship this false god? They would sacrifice children, and they would practice sexual immorality, living sexually however you want. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah about some of those practices in his book. And he said they built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Sacrificing children and sexual freedom. Two ancient practices that people would do when they worship this false god, Baal. Now this isn't going to be popular, but what are the two biggest ongoing like social wars and fights being fought in America right now? The right to express yourself sexually in whatever way you desire and the right to abortion. Sexual freedom sacrificing children. With what goal in mind? To live however we want. To not be restricted, not have our freedoms taken away. Most Americans have never heard the name Baal, and yet so many unknowingly mimic ancient practices that people did to worship him. And I don't know if you noticed, the word limp is used twice in this passage. First, Elijah asks the people how long they're going to limp between two different opinions before they commit themselves to God. And I think that that question still 
applies to us today. And then the Bible says that the prophets of Baal limped around their altar while they cried out to their false god. What's the message? The ways of the world can't save you. Following anything that isn't God, it can't save you. This world, the things that it offers cannot save you. A lot of people have tried, a lot of people are still trying. The wisest man to ever live was a king by the name of Solomon. God told him he'd give him anything he wanted, and Solomon asked for wisdom. And so he was wiser than anyone else. God granted wisdom directly to him, and Solomon wrote this book of Ecclesiastes that, man, I I honestly haven't been able to put down the past couple months. And, And this is what the wisest man in history writes about the world's approach to life. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this, in this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold and the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. It sounds a lot like America. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And that's what the wisest man in history, the man who had everything anyone could ever want in this life, had to say about living life the way the world would have us live. And you could hear from a lot of rich people on their deathbeds who say the same thing. There's no meaning in the ways of the world. It's empty. The pursuit of worldly things comes back void. And God doesn't just call you away from worldly things to see if he can control you. He calls you away from worldly things because they can't save you. And if we won't turn away from false idol worship simply because of how evil it is, I wonder if we will turn away from it because it can't deliver us the type of fulfillment that we're so desperately longing for in this life. Elijah says, how long are you going to limp around? I hear, how long are you going to chase useless things while you try to satisfy yourself? How long are you going to try to mimic the evil practices of false gods unknowingly from thousands of years ago while you fight to live your best life? How long are you going to try to save yourself? Don't you see the mess that's all around you? Don't you see how hard these people around you have to fight to pretend that they're happy while they're dead inside? Can't you see through all of that? Don't you know that there's a God who is offering you a way out of that? A God who's offering you something so transformative and fulfilling that it endures and sustains through every storm in this life. How long are you going to limp around before you fall on your knees and let this God save you? 
These prophets of Baal limped around their altar and then they limped right into the grave. There were 450 of them. There was one Elijah. You know how spiritually and emotionally defeated you have to be to willingly limp off to death? And yet that's exactly what so many people are actively doing in the world as we speak. You think God wants this? Pleased by this? No way, man. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. That's why Jesus came in the flesh to bear the weight and the punishment for all of this mess. That's why Jesus willingly marched off to death so we don't have to limp towards death. And the truth is we either walk with him or we are limping towards death. There is no in-between. There is no gray area. We follow him or we're following death. And then did you hear Elijah's prayer? Did you hear why like this entire thing was happening? By this whole, the, the sacrifice and the altars and the showdown. Elijah tells us why this entire thing is happening. He prays to God in verse 37. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah said, that's why all of this is happening. That's why I went through all of this trouble, so that they will know that you are God and so that they will know that you are the one who have turned their hearts back. If you notice, he didn't pray, God, show them how powerful you are. God, show them how good you are. Show, God, show them that their gods are false. No, God, show them first that you are who you say you are and then show them that you are the one who changes hearts. Isn't that interesting? Like whether or not we know it, God is God and God is the only one who changes hearts. That's just a fact. That's, that's the reality. But Elijah didn't just pray that God would change their hearts. He wanted them to know that it was God. He, he just assumed that seeing who God is would inevitably result in them worshiping. So it was basically, God, I know what you're about to do. And after you do it and you blow their minds, please make sure that they know they didn't just come to this conclusion by themselves that you actively transform them and change their hearts. God, that was all you. They need to know that. You see, faith is not a choice. It's a proximity issue. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean as Christians, I think we talk a little bit too much about choosing Jesus when in fact it was Jesus who chose us. I think Christians talk a little bit too much about doing soul work or spiritual disciplines, but they very rarely talk about why we actually do soul work and spiritual disciplines. What is soul work, by the way, when I say that? What are spiritual disciplines? We talk about reading scripture and worshiping and praying on your own and spending time in Christian community and serving those around you at spiritual disciplines. Why do we push these things so hard? Why do we offer classes about how to read the Bible and how to pray? Why do we encourage you to worship on your own and spend time in Christian community and serve other people? Why do we push this stuff so hard? Well, it's not just because that's what Christians do and it's not a tradition, it's not a ritual. It's because we know that these things put you in close proximity to God and we know that being in close proximity to God produces faith. You don't, you don't just make the decision to believe. Have you lost your mind? Like you weren't just sitting on the couch one day and all of a sudden of your own free will, you're like, you know what? I'm going to decide to follow Jesus Christ. No. 
in some way, shape, or form, you were or had been spending time in close proximity to God, and it was changing your heart. Whether you had a Christian friend who dragged you to church, or maybe people were praying for you that you didn't even know about, or maybe you just decided to randomly pick up the Bible one day and start thumbing through it, or maybe you heard a song on the radio that had some truth that you'd never heard before, or stumbled upon a video of someone talking about Jesus, whatever it was, it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't a decision that you made. You spent time in close proximity to God, and he began to reveal who he is to you, and then you found yourself changing because of that. Faith is not simply a choice. It's an inevitable result of spending time in proximity to God. And so if you're struggling with your faith this morning, the worst advice any Christian could ever give you, and man, we really have to stop saying this, the worst advice I could give you this morning if you're struggling with your faith is just believe. Just believe, brother. Just believe. Really. What profound sage advice? Like, why didn't I think of that? I just believe. You know who says just believe? People who don't understand that God is the one who changed their hearts and not them. And I think the reason that Elijah wants these people to know and wants us to know so badly that it was God, he wants them to know, like, yeah, you just hit your knees and things are great and you're praising and you're worshiping and you just had this powerful God experience, but make no mistake, life is coming, man. Life is going to happen and you're going to struggle and you're going to drift and you're going to forget and faith is, becoming, is going to become an obstacle for you and you need to know that when you're struggling in your faith and you don't know what to do, that your response is not to just believe Your response is to get yourself back in close proximity to God so that he can continue to change your heart. That's why the Bible says in the book of James, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your heart, or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James doesn't say, just believe and God will draw near to you. He doesn't say, be a better person, and God will draw near to you. He says, get yourself away from the things that are killing you, and instead, get yourself in close proximity to the God who's trying to save you. Have you ever swam to the bottom of a 10-foot pool, like a deep pool, 10-foot, 12-foot, and just like swim to the bottom of it? What happens when you stop swimming? Your buoyancy immediately like pulls you up to the top. I want you to imagine that a firestorm is coming and that the bottom of that pool is the safest place you can be. Completely enveloped in water like the love of God, the weight of his grace all around you, so deep and profound it's impossible to miss. And I want you to imagine at the bottom of that pool is an anchor. Now that anchor is Jesus and your goal in life is to stay anchored. How do you do that? Swim towards your anchor. You try to stay in close proximity. I I want you to think of every worship song you sing and every Bible verse you read and every conversation you have with another believer and every time you serve someone in Jesus' name, like each one of these things is like a swimming stroke getting you closer and closer, keeping you close to your anchor, surrounding your life with the love and grace of God, getting it in your ears and in your eyes and in your heart. And as you swim closer to the anchor, it gets clearer, right? Your vision's blurry, but as you get closer, you can see it more clearly. And maybe you've even had seasons in your life where you felt like you had a pretty good grip 
on that anchor. But the truth is, most of the time, you're going to be swimming. Most of the time, you're going to be fighting to stay close to the anchor. And it's hard, right? It's work. It's hard because everything as you swim, everything is trying to pull you up out of the water, trying to get your head out of the water, trying to yank you up out of the pool with the rest of the non-believers or drag you off to the shallow end where everyone's comfortable standing on their own feet and calling themselves believers. But the fire is coming. And so I'm not here challenging you to be a better person or work harder not to sin. I'm not, don't hear me say that. I am asking you to keep swimming towards the anchor and I'm asking you that because it's the only safe place I know about in the universe. And I'm asking you to get yourself in close proximity to God, not because it's just what Christians do, but because I know that you can't make yourself believe. You don't have the power to do that. And if you feel anything stirring in your heart right now, I want you to know that that is God. That's not me. That's not this place. That's being in close proximity to Jesus. And I just challenge you to lean into it. It's not some fight to try to be a good person. It's a fight to stay in close proximity to the one who changes hearts. And that is fight enough. We're not in a good person contest. There's no imaginary line. We're either walking with Jesus or we are limping towards death. And man, if you've never accepted the invitation to follow Jesus, I, I implore you to do so. There's nothing better in the universe. We don't have to limp around in our brokenness anymore. He's so much better. And if you're a believer in this place right now and you find yourself struggling, man, I'm not going to tell you just believe, brother. Just try harder. Sister, I'm going to challenge you to just start putting yourself back in close proximity to the God who shows up every time he will show up for you and he will change your heart. Where is God when the entire world is against me? He's changing hearts. He's changing my heart. He's changing the hearts of everyone who is swimming towards him at the bottom of the pool. Let's pray. God, I, I know that I'm not anything without you. God, and I have no idea where I would be if I didn't make the decision to follow you. And I still struggle. I still mess up, and I still fail time and time again. I am inconsistent, but you are perfect in your consistency. You show up time and time again, God. And I've experienced in so many ways, as I'm sure a lot of us have, that the things that this world have to offer, that might give you a little brief glimmer of happiness or something, but in the end, it just leaves us feeling empty leaves us feeling lost. And you don't desire that for us, God. You don't desire that we limp around in brokenness towards death, chasing after useless things that can't fulfill us, that you have a better way, that you died on a cross so that you could bring us back to life and we could spend our life swimming towards you and chasing after you and getting these amazing moments of clarity and peace and humility and joy, all of these things that you offer to us, God. And I pray that through Elijah's story, that each person in this room, just as he prays, sees that you are God and understands that you are the one who changes hearts. And whatever decision they need to make in this moment, whether it's to follow you, whether it's to get back in close proximity to you, God, you know, I don't. But whatever move we need to make towards you, God, I pray that we move it. I pray that we are a community that is so desperately dependent on you that we do not move unless we feel you. And everything we do, we commit to you, God. We commit to you because we trust you 
Your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts are higher than ours. You are the greatest thing in the universe. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to follow you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.